Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Blake Hounchell in for Scott Bland. This week on Nerdcast, we're talking about Biden, Inc. Over his decades in office, the former vice president, or middle-class Joe, as he calls himself, his family fortunes have closely tracked his political career. So we're devoting today's show to Politico's investigation into the Biden family's finances. Okay, let's get started. Here with me is reporter Ben Schreckinger, who did this kind of mammoth piece. It was about, what is it, 17,000 words, Ben? More like 7,000. Okay. It felt like 17,000. Felt, like, felt like six. Yeah. Anyway, Ben Schreckinger wrote this mammoth piece on Biden, Inc., and we're here to talk about the process and the what the story said and what he learned while he was doing it and just generally talk about Biden and his family, which is, I, I feel like, hasn't really been explored that much until recently. Yeah, we, we've been seeing some headlines about Hunter the, the last few months, uh, and people know about Valerie Biden, his sister, who's, who's a big confidant of his. Uh, but there are more Bidens, and they're all interesting. Um, but first, before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about uh, this week. There was a Quinnipiac poll on the presidential contest that was, I think, pretty interesting for what it said about Joe Biden's durability. You know, he's taken a lot of knocks, um, your piece being one of them. But, uh, you know, he had a pretty rocky first debate. And then last week's debate was a little better. But I don't think, you know, anyone would say that he knocked it out of the park exactly. exactly. Um, but still, his, his poll numbers are hanging in there. There's a lot of people in the political chattering class who had assumed that the bottom would fall out for Biden, that, you know, given his history as a candidate, he, he's not historically done well in these presidential races, which is why he was a vice president. And, you know, he seems just like he's lost a step sometimes. So a lot of people in our world assumed that um, his poll numbers would start to fall. And they've they've uh, gone down a little bit since he announced, but held a lot steadier than many people expected. What do you make of that? I think, one, uh, the chattering classes pays a lot of attention to Twitter. They pay a lot of attention to uh, the young, energetic, exciting activist base. Uh, and those are, are places and demographics where Biden is, is the least popular uh, within the party. But that if you look at voters, they skew older. They're not paying as much attention to the ins and outs of negative press uh, or minor gaffes uh, this far away from voting. So while he's been surprisingly sort of resilient in his poll numbers, uh, there's also plenty of time for big shifts in the race, especially uh, as we get closer to, to Iowa and New Hampshire. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, and just some to, to pull out some numbers, since at Nerdcast, um, even though Scott is out, we're still about numbers. Um, so Biden's still polling in the mid-30s. That Q poll had him at 30, I believe, or uh, just a couple points down from the previous poll. And one interesting finding in the poll is that 49% of voters believe Biden has the best chance of beating President Donald Trump in, next November. 
And around 50% of voters say they believe electability is more important than nominating a candidate who, quote, shares your views on issues. So what that says to me is that since we're all pundits now, including voters, they're looking at the race and they're seeing like Biden's narrative about I'm the best guy to, to beat Donald Trump. I'm from Scranton, Pennsylvania. I'm like working class Joe, middle class Joe. Um, I can appeal to those Trump voters who, you know, flipped from Obama in 2016. A lot of voters are, are taking that argument and they're they're thinking strategically like that, that that's that's correct. And they just want to oust Donald Trump and they don't really care about who's got the right position on Medicare for all and you know all those details that we we heard last week in the debate which is interesting in that it could make him vulnerable uh, to cases that are made that he's not as electable in a general election as he looks um, if he's looking soft in the Midwest for example that's certainly his path uh, to victory and, and then you sort of see coming out of this debate uh, Elizabeth Warren emerging a little bit more clearly as the as the runner-up as the sort of the strongest challenger to Biden at the moment, uh, which has been a slow and steady process for her, someone who really got off the blocks uh, quite slowly. Uh, And after the first debate, it looked like Kamala Harris was emerging as that uh, sort of first runner-up challenger to Biden. It'll be interesting to see if that holds and if you see Warren going after Biden on policy going forward. Yeah, that's definitely going to be something that we'll be watching closely. So anyway, let's get into the Biden family finances. Uh, I know you spent, what was it, a month, two months looking into this? Something like that, month and a half maybe, yeah. Anyway, a good chunk of your life that you'll never get back. (laughs) Um, Let's start with the dramatic opening scene you detail in your story. Paint us a picture of the summer of 2006. So there is a hedge fund in Midtown, New York called Paradigm Global Advisors. Uh, It is founded by a man named Dr. James Park uh, around the early 90s. It's one of the first fund of funds hedge funds, uh, meaning that it it was a hedge fund that invested in other hedge funds. Uh, This guy, Dr. Park, uh, was a son-in-law of the Reverend Moon, the founder of the Moonies, uh, the Unification Church Movement. And This hedge fund had had a good run. Uh, It was having a bunch of internal problems. Dr. Park had a a substance abuse problem. He was uh, allegedly using company funds to to nurse that habit. And so uh, Hunter Biden, who is uh, Joe Biden's younger son, and James Biden, who is one of Joe Biden's younger brothers, uh, gets together. Uh, They end up buying this hedge fund from Dr. Park. Uh, and according to a uh, former executive at Paradigm, who, who we spoke with, who was there on this day in September 2006, where they uh, take over the fund, uh, Hunter and James Biden show up with Bo Biden, who's Joe's other son, uh, take over the firm. They uh, order the firing of the fund's then president, Stefan Farouz. He gets escorted out by a couple of large men. Uh, and James Biden uh, starts laying out uh, in front of this executive. Uh, his vision for the fund going forward. And he says, don't worry about investors. Uh, We've got a lot of people uh, who want to invest in in Joe Biden. Uh, We have 747s lined up with cash. Uh, And what he's referring to, according to this former executive, is the fact that there are uh, a lot of 
foreign sources of money who cannot legally donate to Joe Biden's campaigns, uh, but want to be supportive of him. This is when Joe Biden is about to become uh, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate. He's about to launch a, launch a presidential campaign. So these people can come in and invest in our hedge fund. And Bo Biden, upon hearing this, you know, there's all sorts of ethical problems with a plan like that. It gets right in the face, according to this executive, and says, don't ever say that again. I'm not going to have anything to do with this. And that is the first day that the Bidens uh, take over this hedge fund. And why did you choose to open with that anecdote? What to you was significant about that? Well, it was it was vivid um, for decades as, as I sort of started to dig in on first on Hunter Biden's business dealings and then also his uncle James Biden's business dealings. You know, for decades, really, uh, there have been stories about their business dealings that have sort of raised the prospect of whether they were trying to cash in on Joe's name, get money from people who had some interest in, in policies that Joe was overseeing, uh, political allies of Joe. Uh, and this was the first time uh, that anyone in the press, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, had directly spoken uh, to people who were uh, colleagues of the Bidens who worked with them on one of these ventures and said, yes, they explicitly said uh, that political supporters, political allies of Joe were, were who were going to be targeting uh, for getting investments. Uh, three of those executives also said that uh, union pension funds were going to be a, a target for finding investments for this hedge fund because of their connections to Joe. But, but th- just to be clear about a couple things. One, James and Hunter didn't really succeed, right? Like they, 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 they sought out this union money and the firefighter money and the, the 747s full of cash from abroad, but that didn't really materialize, did it? Right. According to everyone we spoke to, including a, a representative for James and Hunter, they didn't end up getting new investors at all. Uh, they had control of this hedge fund for about four years. Uh, there were a lot of problems, a lot of issues uh, in those four like years. Um, like they uh, ended up doing a fund together with Stanford Capital Management. Uh, that is Alan Stanford's fund. Uh, he was arrested uh, in 2009, sort of in the wake of the financial crisis. Uh, for unrelated reasons. For an unrelated... Uh, but still not, not great for the Biden brand. Yeah, for an unrelated $8 billion or $9 billion Ponzi scheme, uh, one of the largest in U.S. history. Uh, it did come out in the press at the time that there was this fund that Stanford Capital Management had done with Paradigm and, and the Biden connection to Paradigm. Uh, there was a, another fund uh, that was fraudulent, Negra Ponte, that uh, was run out of the office space of Paradigm Global Advisors. They'd apparently rented out some of their office space to someone named Francesco Ruschiano, who was arrested for for another fraud around that same time. Uh, so it was it was almost sort of a comedy of errors when you look at the the history of this uh, this hedge fund and uh, and they eventually ended up just kind of shutting it down, right? Shutting it down, giving the money back to investors, um, according to one bank executive who had some insight into this. They shut it down because the assets under management went down when the markets crashed, and therefore the fees that they could collect were not as large as they'd been before the crash. According to a couple of other former Paradigm executives, uh, part of the reason they shut this thing down was because of all the scrutiny it was getting in the press and sort of the embarrassing revelations tying this thing to the vice president. So let's step back here for a minute. Biden is now running to be the Democratic nominee for president. 
And he's often made the point that he hasn't gotten rich from his decades in politics. There's been, I think, research that he was either the least wealthy or um, one of the least wealthy members of the Senate, which is full of millionaires. That's why he calls himself Middle Class Joe. So you wrote that as recently as 2009, his net worth was like $30,000. Do I have that right? Yes. So, you know, he's, he's made this image of a straight shooting man of the people really central to his political brand. Where do his son and brother come into that picture? Well, all the sorts of high-flying business, you know, complex finance, uh, the sort of stuff that Joe has distanced himself from in in being someone who uh, appeals to union voters, uh, wants to be seen as a regular guy. Uh, They've been pursuing ventures like that, lobbying, for decades. Uh, James and Hunter. James and Hunter, that's right, his brother and his son, and doing so in ways that are constantly overlapping uh, with Joe's political career and in ways that either uh, seem to be uh, benefiting from Joe's political connections uh, or in the case of these former paradigm executives that we spoke to, you know, are explicitly uh, about finding ways of cashing in on Joe's political connections. So did you ever, just to be clear, did you ever find any evidence that Joe Biden encouraged this? No, we uh, found uh, no evidence of him using his power inappropriately, of him being involved in the attempts to, to bring in financing. Uh, I think the question, though, is, you know, over the decades, this happens again and again. And has he spoken to them about this? Has he said that, you know, the, the appearance of a conflict of interest is a problem? Uh, it's not queer to us, and the campaign didn't weigh in. Uh, we did speak to Richard Painter, who was the ethics czar in, in George W. Bush's White House. Uh, he suggested that Biden should come out and make some sort of pledge about asking his family members to refrain from certain types of business activities if he's elected uh, that could pose conflict of interest questions. Like and taking. did they make that pledge? No. We, uh, we, asked, we asked the campaign. They declined to comment. Uh, we asked uh, this representative for James and Hunter, what they thought about something like that and, and didn't get an answer on that point. So I want to pause for a minute, but when we come back, we'll hear some more details about your reporting. Nerdcast will be right back after this short message. Worldly from Vox is your guide to news from all around the world. Every Thursday, senior writer Zach Beecham, senior foreign editor Jennifer Williams, and defense writer Alex Ward give you the history and context you need to make sense of global stories. If you want to understand news out of Iran, Syria, North Korea, Russia, China, Brazil, Worldly is the podcast for you. And they always save a segment of the podcast for bright, fresh international stories, a fruit heist in Spain, or Iceland's quest to build a better soccer team. Subscribe to Worldly from Vox on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Welcome back, listeners. I'm here with Ben Schreckinger, and we're talking about Biden, Inc., his big investigative story on how James and Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's brother and son, have tried to cash in on his family name. So one question I have for you, do James and Hunter Biden remind you of any past figures in presidential history? Yeah, they're sort of uh, archetypal of this relative of a high-flying national politician who is constantly creating bad headlines with their business dealings, seeming to always be looking to make a buck off their off their family connections. Uh, Billy Carter was, was one of the more famous examples of that, Jimmy Carter's brother. Uh, at one point, he was working for the Libyan government. 
At another point, he created Billy Beer to sort of cash in on his own notoriety. But there have been other siblings, Hillary Clinton and, and Bill Clinton. Uh, there have been... Uh, Roger, Bill's brother, Roger. Right. Even Bush siblings, right? Marvin Bush has, has had some problems. And then, of course, there are all the questions about the, the Trump family and uh, the fact that they're still running the Trump organization while Donald Trump is in office. Well, and, you know, Ivanka and her husband, Jared, work at the White House. Um, it's a pretty blurry line there. So there are lots of comparisons. One thing that uh, I noted when the story came out was that Donald Trump Jr. actually tweeted it. Yeah, uh, he apparently is very sensitive to the idea of a uh, son cashing in on his father's name. It's sort of ironic. In he's, he's literally Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> yeah, and he's, he's running the Trump organization and, uh, you know, the various ways in which they appear to be benefiting off of, off of the presidency have been well documented. You know, they have hotels where a lot of foreign dignitaries are now staying in, in ways that uh, suggest that they're trying to curry favor with the president by uh, giving money to his, his family business. Um, so we're not we're not suggesting there's any kind of false equivalence between the the two examples. Obviously, the scale of interconnections between the Trump organization and the Trump political brand dwarfs anything that we're talking about with the Bidens. But it's still pretty noteworthy that you've got this brother who could be a problem if and when Joe takes the White House. That's right, and and son uh, who attracted attention first. That was one thing that, that was I think was interesting is that uh, there have been headlines about Hunter Biden, but if you start looking at old news coverage, start digging into uh, lawsuits and the like, uh, you find out that, that James Biden has also been engaging in business dealings in ways that overlap with his brother's political career for, for 40 plus years at this point. So let's talk about James Biden for a little bit. Um, not really much has been written about him before this, and I... I have to confess that I didn't know that James Biden even existed before uh, you started telling me about the story before we published it. So much of the piece is about James. Uh, so I'm curious, like, paint us a picture of who he is as a person. What do we know about what he's like uh, as, as, as a man, as a businessman, as a sibling? The paper trail is relatively thin. Um, he's seven years younger than Joe. Uh, Joe's first Senate campaign in 1972 was a bit of a family affair. It was a, a scrappy little operation. Uh, and so his younger brother, James, uh, was the finance chair. Uh, I spoke to one person who later worked with James who said that James was known as the hammer because he would hammer the table as he was uh, seeking donations to sort of make his point and, and make sure that the campaign got those donations. And as soon as, as Joe was elected to the Senate, he decided uh, he'd been working as a salesman. He decided he wanted to go into the nightclub business, which was a, a new venture for him. And he was uh, Joe was, I think, 29 when he was elected to the Senate. So James was 22 or 23 at that time. He was in his early 20s. He decided to open a nightclub. Uh, as one does. <laughs> as one does. In, in so tell Delaware. us about this nightclub. Where was it and what was the name of it? It was near something called the Brandywine Raceway. It was a horse race uh, facility. Uh, it was in Delaware. It was called Seasons Change. Uh, he went into it with a... With a the big, nightclub was called Seasons Change? Yeah. The nightclub was called Seasons Change. And it did well for a short period of time and then started doing not so well. And James, but J James had a kind of a weird theory of the case here, right? Tell us, tell us why he thought that the nightclub would be a good business for him. 
Well, so actually it was it was the bank. There, later he took out all these loans. They started to go belly up. The banks that were involved were started to be, get investigated for various reasons. And it emerged that one of these banks made this loan to James to open this nightclub because they figured that having the Biden name attached would attract club goers, that right. people in Delaware who wanted <laughs> I to guess party. There's not, I wanna... grew up in Delaware, and I know there's not much to do there. So maybe maybe the bank had a good good uh, business idea there, but it didn't work out, did it? It didn't work out. Um, and th- the nature of these loans, which were unusual, uh, came to light later uh, as they started to go bad, as these banks started to have problems. Uh, and Joe Biden was on the Senate Banking Committee at the time, which raised all sorts of questions about why his brother was able to get these these loans that he ended up not being able to pay back. You, you say the loans were unusual. What do you mean by that? So uh, one of these loans uh, was unsecured, uh, despite the fact that James uh, had no experience running a nightclub. And the, keep in mind, he's 22, right? <laughs> he's a 22-year-old kid. He wants to open a nightclub. And a bank says, sure, here's some money. Um, with no collateral. Uh, another bank uh, gave him a, a much larger loan, uh, about $500,000, uh, which uh, is the equivalent of something north of $2 million in, uh, in today's dollars, with very, very low collateral. This was someone who had uh, not a lot of money to his name, not a lot to secure this debt against. The bank gave him this money. And as it turned out, it, it wasn't a a money a money making loan because he he wasn't able to fully satisfy these loans and and there were issues collecting that Joe got involved in. Yeah, tell tell me about no as I recall Joe got tangentially involved in this situation. Tell us about that a little bit. Sure. With one of these loans, the bank came calling. James wasn't able to make his payments. Uh, they were giving him a hard time. Uh, apparently, at, at one point, the loan officer said to James something like, you know, this would really look bad for your brother if you're not able to, to pay us back here. Uh, and this got back to Joe, uh, who was furious and called the, the chairman of the bank, Farmers Bank, and said, hey, leave me out of this. And by the way, how did you even let this get so far? Why did you loan this young guy all this money that he's not able to pay back? Uh, that ended up making it into the newspapers. The Biden people stressed that the only reason that Joe called that bank was because uh, they'd been invoking his name with James, and and the bank agreed with that uh, version of events. But nonetheless, uh, always worth paying attention when uh, a senator on the banking committee uh, calls a bank to complain about a loan to his brother. Wow, yeah, that's that's pretty awkward. Um, What's the most surprising thing, aside from the nightclub story, that you found in your reporting? I mean, one thing that was surprising when I when I started out doing this reporting, I figured I'd be looking at what Hunter Biden was doing in the last, uh, you know, five or ten years uh, in terms of uh, foreign dealing, something that we get to in the story and that's been covered elsewhere. And I was just surprised to find out that time and time again, there are you know seven or so episodes here, uh, going back to the seventies. James or Hunter or both of them have been involved in business dealings that have that have raised questions. So sort of just the scope and depth of this pattern was was one thing that was surprising to me. Did you get a chance to talk with James or Hunter in the course of reporting this article? I didn't, unfortunately. I reached out to to Hunter and didn't hear back. But while I was reporting, a, a lawyer for Hunter who ended up acting as a spokesman for James and Hunter. They contacted you, right? Yeah, they said, we hear you're asking around. And so... Uh, ended up interacting uh, with him a good deal, uh, did manage to, to briefly talk to Sarah Biden, who's James's wife, who was involved in one or two of these ventures herself. Um, she sort of just referred me back to the campaign. 
So have not yet been able to speak to James or Hunter uh, directly. But not for a lack of trying. Not for a lack of trying, no. You know, it's interesting because there is a parallel between the Biden family and the Trump family in that, you know, Biden, we talked about his first Senate race and and, um, James was the finance director, but his family is still pretty intimately involved in his uh, political career. There's his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, uh, and then his sister, Valerie, is heavily involved as a kind of like a, a very close advisor. So we're not talking about... You know, a family that's been at arm's length from politics or from Joe Biden's political career. That's right. And another thing that is said often about Biden is, in addition to the extent to which, you know, his family's involved in, in the politics, is just the extent to which the Biden clan is said to be very close. You know, obviously, a, a lot of people are close with their family, but it, it's to a degree with the Bidens that it's often remarked upon. It's also been reported that he doesn't talk to Hunter, for example, about Hunter's business dealings. But but you have to wonder, he's extremely close to his family on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, he's managing to never talk to, to Hunter, at least, about his business dealings, uh, which, of course, has, has come uh, come back to bite them in, in some of these stories that have emerged. Did you ever stumble on any evidence that Joe told James and Hunter, "Hey guys, knock it off." No, not that. I, not that. The only the only knock it off uh, that I saw was uh, Joe telling uh, Farmers Bank to knock it off uh, in terms of using his name and trying to collect on their loan to James. You know, also just the record doesn't seem to indicate that because they keep, uh, you know, they keep embarking on this on these business ventures that end up creating negative headlines. So. In the end, Ben, where does this leave the Biden family's finances? Can you give us a window into how much Joe and his wife Jill are worth and then James and Hunter, were they able to cash in on this? Yeah. So after all of these years, all of these business ventures, it's really not clear how successful James and Hunter have been. Uh, We do know that Joe and his wife Jill, uh, since leaving the Obama administration, in the two years after that, they made about $15 million on things like uh, book deals and speaking engagements. Uh, So that's a good chunk of change. Hunter Biden gave a a long interview to The New Yorker recently in which he said he's basically lived paycheck to paycheck uh, for most of his adult life. He did say that he offered to to pay his ex-wife child support and alimony amounting to something like $37,000 a month, which is a good chunk of change. He, he, he's uh, apparently not totally broke. Yeah, that's some cheddar right there. Yeah. And then with James Biden, there was a, a Fox Business Network report in 2012 that pegged his net worth at $7 million. It's not clear to me how they got that figure. Um, and he bought a pretty swank pad in Florida, as I recall. Yeah. And so in 2013, James Biden and his wife, Sarah, bought a house in Florida for $2 million and change. There were some financial problems with that house. Uh, it's not clear if, if they intended it as an investment to, to make money on, but if they did, it didn't work out. Uh, they did put it on the market for about $6 million uh, a little bit after they bought it, uh, but ended up selling it for more like $1.3 million, so taking a loss on that uh, last February. Um, so what is the what is the so bottom line? Did they did they succeed in cashing in or not? Well, you know, seven million dollar net worth is uh, more than most people. Yeah, it ain't bad. If there's more than that, uh, we haven't seen it. Unfortunately, you know, there's no requirement that the, the relatives of candidates for federal office disclose detailed financials. 
but there's there there's not a lot of evidence that he's had huge runaway business successes over the years. It looks like you've got uh, some future work cut out for you to to dig into this a little bit more. Um, we'll wrap there. Uh, you can read Ben's fascinating investigation for Politico at Politico magazine. It's titled Biden Inc. Big thanks to listeners for tuning in. Our producer this week is Jenny Ament. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show, and you should give me five stars because I'm excellent. Thanks for listening. Nerdcast will be back next week with its regular cast of characters. <laughs> <laughs>